We've been seeking to connect some dots as we've looked at the creation account and what follows heavy on the heels of a good creation that God created is Genesis 3, the fall of man into sin. And the, virtually the rest of the Bible, except for the last couple of chapters, deals with the consequences of living in a fallen world. And then uh, as, as we looked at not only at man's fall into sin, but the reality of our condition before Christ intervened in our lives in salvation, uh, we, we looked at our condition of total depravity, totally depraved, dead and depraved. Many uh, people suggest that man is alive and well, and others who are not quite so extreme will say, well, man's alive, but he is sick. And yet we believe that uh, divine revelation would teach us that man is dead and deprived, uh, dead and depraved. We looked at uh, uh, Paul to the Romans and uh, looked at him unfolding that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, that he quickened us, he made us alive in Christ. And so uh, we, we want to start here in Romans 5 to connect the, the fall years ago in Adam to this total depravity doctrine we started last week. In Romans chapter, chapter 5, beginning in verse number 12, you're going to notice as we go down through these verses, two individuals, two concepts, Adam and the second Adam. Uh, Adam is a type of Christ. Christ is the second Adam. I'm, I'm involved in, a, in an online uh, theology discussion group. It uh, doesn't sound real theologically literate. It's called uh, nerdy theology majors. But uh, uh, the, the discussion this week, one of the discussions was, was in regards to, to this, this doctrine, of tip, you know, this, this typology, what is a type? And we know clearly that anything in the New Testament that refers back to a type in the Old Testament is a type. And so this is one of those clear and unambiguous types in this figurative language in picturing Jesus in the, in the Old Testament that Adam was a, a type of the one to come. And so here in Romans 5, in the, in the first Adam, the real historic man in the Garden of Eden who lost his innocence, uh, that is gained in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The curse that came through the first Adam is reversed and undone in the second Adam. And so, down through these verses here in Romans 5, you see uh, one reality through the first Adam, and that is death. And in the second Adam, through Christ, comes life. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will what? You will die. It will be immediate and long-term death. Immediate in spiritually being separated from God instantaneously, and later on through physical death. So here in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, notice that contrast. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, just a reminder what we said last week in regards to this verse. We do not uh, become sinners because we commit sins. We commit sin because we are by nature at the very core of our being sinners. That's our nature. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, let me, let me stop again uh, as, uh, as we get going there. That one word, imputed. Uh, let's make sure we define that. When you see the word impute, one word that will help you understand clearly, think credit. We talk about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That through faith in the life death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and Christ alone, faith in His name, His very righteousness is credited, it is imputed to us, so that His Father, from the moment, from that moment on, looks at us through the righteousness of Christ, as if, you know, that our sins have been atoned for. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He died the satisfactory death for sinners that we deserved. And so his righteousness is credited to us. This is a different imputation talked about in Romans 5. This is the imputation or the credit of sin. Because Adam sinned, sin was credited down to the rest of the human race. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. That's the second Adam. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, capital M, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression, in other words, the breaking of the law of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you notice in this passage the, the balance? When you study man's sinfulness, it gets bleak and dark and hopeless very quick. Very negative when we look at total depravity, that man has nothing to appease a holy God. Nothing in ourselves. All our righteousness are His filthy rags. It's a hopeless cause apart from Christ. But in Christ, 
You know, through the one, we've got everything of death and sin and the consequences, and the other, the second Adam, we've got everything. Everything that was undone in the first man is made right in Christ. And for, for those who would cry foul or not fair, you know, <laughs> we were playing cards this weekend when my family was in, and uh, uh, whether that's righteous or not, but uh, we were playing cards, and uh, w- one of the family says, well, that's not fair, the way you're playing the game, and the kids <laughs> said, well, we don't use that in this house. We don't talk about fairness. Uh, you know, when it comes to the doctrine of total depravity or God's sovereign grace, God's electing love, you better not play the fairness card. It's not fair that God the Father could, should kill His Son on behalf of sinners. That's not fair. That's grace. But for those few people out there that would cry foul, unfair, concerning the imputation of Adam's sin, well, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have done the same as Adam. You know, why is he my representative? Uh, Alva J. McLean, who was a theologian out at Grace Seminary, answered that phrase in the form of a question. And I, I thought that McLean's question was a good one to give this balance. He says, quote, You may say you do not think it is right that we should die for Adam's sin. But by the same token, is it right for God to give you righteousness when you do not have any? If anyone wants to accuse God of injustice, this is the only place he could do so. But what believer, having experienced the mercy and grace of God in Christ, would dare protest the death of the absolutely righteous one on behalf of the many who by position and practice were unrighteous? You see, when, when, when we cry unfair or we cry foul, you, we, don't, we don't have an accurate view of total depravity and the helplessness of our condition before Christ. You thought that there was some inherent goodness that you could offer But if you've been brought low by the gospel and you recognize poverty of spirit, that you're spiritually bankrupt, that's the first beatitude, then you can be gloriously saved because you're, you're, you're small enough at that point to cry out to God for mercy. Say, I got nothing. You know, uh, it's like we sang this morning, the solid rock. Now, that's the, that's the hope that we have in Him. So, let's, as, let me fast forward these slides that we looked at last week from Romans 2 and, uh, and Ephesians 2 and Romans 3, uh, and, and just unpack a little bit more in more of a, uh, more of a Bible study fashion uh, of going through some of these texts to, to breathe deeply what the Bible reveals about our condition before Christ. Because, as we've said before, we use the illustration, when you go to buy jewelry, they take out the, the jewelry, the nice, uh, the nice necklace or ring, and they, they put it on that black velvet so that it shows up real nice. And the, that's what I'd do when I'd sell cutlery, you know, you put it on this nice fine thing so it's got a good uh, a backdrop, and when you see the blackness of our heart condition apart from Christ, you know, it's, 
as we go through these, these uh, passages and, and think about it, let me, let me use one more illustration to try to help us think in the right way. How many of you went apple, have gone apple picking or raised apples and whatnot? Uh, we used to, when we lived up in New Hampshire, we had this place that we used to like to go, take the kids because they'd make the apple, uh, uh, the fresh apple uh, donuts and whatnot and the cider and all that stuff. And you'd take a bite of an apple and you see half, half a worm in the, left in the apple and you come to the conclusion, I guess I know where the other half of the worm is out of this bite I just took. And, and, you, and the kid asks you the question, well, how'd that worm get in there? You, know, you, you inspect the apple, and you see no hole, no evidence of a worm being in the apple. Perhaps you think that a worm burrows in from the outside, and that if there is no hole in the apple, the apple must be good, it must be whole, it must be untainted. Well, I have to take their word for it. I, I am told that scientists have discovered worms do not come from the outside, they come from the inside. So how'd they get in there? You take an insect that lays an egg in the apple blossom, and sometime later the worm hatches in the heart of the apple, then eats its way out. What a picture of sin. Sin like that worm begins in the heart, begins in the heart, and works out through our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, our actions and manifests outwardly what we are inside. And as we said last week, total depravity does not mean that every person acts out their depravity to the extreme that certain other people do. But before God, we are all in the same basket because of these polluted roots. So if you were in your thought process for these few minutes, mark down in your mind point one, polluted roots, because that's what the first several verses, the first two bullet points speak of, is polluted roots. The first bullet point, Genesis 2 and 3, Romans 5 that we already read, is the fall's reality. We live after Genesis chapter 3 in a post-fall world, and this is the fallen reality is all we know. It is the only truth. The second bullet point, Psalm 51 and Ephesians 2, is the fall's results. Here's what it led to. Now, we, we read uh, from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 last week so that we, we, won't, we won't go to Ephesians 2 again. If you take your Bibles, turn back to the psalmist in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, this is one of those, uh, one of those verses that uh, when you see it, you're going to remember it. Many of you could quote this. This is a, Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote when the prophet came to town and uh, said, Thou art the man. You're the one. You've been caught red-handed. Don't try to excuse it. Don't try to blame shift. And he says in verse 5, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, this is divine revelation, David 
helping us understand and comprehend from the inside out the false consequences. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, no matter how cute these new babies in our, are in our church, and getting cuter all the time, some of these kids that are, as they're getting their, uh, not only their pictures, but videos get posted on Facebook, I tell the mothers, just stop, okay, it's too much cuteness. Uh, you know, and you look at this little cute, little cute kid, and you have to recognize, even as a parent, when does, when does total depravity start? Before the, even the cuteness, before you could see them at conception, from the very beginning of life, there is sin, corruption in the human heart. No matter how nice they are, before they can act out that depravity by disobeying, or having a bad attitude, before they can even demonstrate it, they have it. That is the fall's result. Look uh, several Psalms later in Psalm 58 and verse number 3. I couldn't put them all up here for you. You've got to write something. Psalm 58 and verse number 3 can't get much clearer than when you are told that the wicked, and that's not just yeah, that's not just the heathen that haven't heard the gospel. That's you and me before Christ. The wicked, the lawbreakers. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from where? From birth. From the very beginning. They do not become sinners because they're exposed to sin as a child. They do not become a sinner because of bad parenting. They become sinners through Adam, imputed sin. And so we need to recognize this. Uh, go, go back several Psalms to Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. Again, David helping us flesh out this doctrine to understand what this what lawbreakers really are like. He says in Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are, are wicked and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good, he does not despise evil. You notice that? You know, he, uh, as, as he's laying in bed, he's just thinking about how he can sin. That's, that's the polluted reality of man. Man's realities, the, the falls, uh, uh, results. So these are the polluted roots. Point two, we go from polluted roots in our thinking... From the very get-go, the very conception of man from, from the beginning of life to a profane reputation, from polluted roots to profane reputation. Now, since we're in Psalms, you don't have to go far back to go to, go to Job, so turn left, Job 4 and verse number 17. 
And we'll let Job develop the, the first, first point, several passages here in Job, on our profane reputation as those that are totally depraved. Job 4, 17. Can mankind be just before God? That's a rhetorical question that the rest of Scripture answers. Can a man be pure before his Maker? Well, let's see what the answer to that rhetorical question is. Uh, Chapter 14, Job 14, as he wrestles with life, he wrestles with mortality, he wrestles with sinfulness, and in Job 14, 1 through 4, he says, man who's born of woman is short-lived. Life's short. We know that. I just found out that uh, yesterday a guy I went to college with just uh, died of a uh, snowmobile accident. He didn't plan on dying this week. He pastored a church in Idaho, left a wife and six kids. He's my age, just a young pup. Life is short. Job says that. He says uh, it's short-lived. And what's it consist of, this short life? It's full of turmoil, full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Same question he just asked back in chapter 4. Notice his answer. No one. No one can make himself clean since he is unclean. Look at the next chapter. Job 15, verses 14 through 16. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy, in, in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. He doesn't desire spiritual things. Verse 16, how much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Boy, what a, what a word picture. Man drinks iniquity like he drinks water. Look at chapter 25, Job 25. You know, when I first started studying uh, a doctor, th- this, this doctrine, I didn't like its picture of me. I used to like to think of self as, as a little less wretched than the Bible describes me. And the more you grow in your understanding of Scripture and your knowledge of the gospel and your hopeless case before Christ, the more your heartstrings are tuned to worship and praise and serve God out of hearts of gratitude. Because you knew you were dead and depraved, but you didn't know how dead and depraved you really were. <laughs> and that's why the Bible uses that metaphor of deadness. Dead man can't do anything. So, Job uh, 25, verse 4. How then can a man be just with God? He keeps asking the same question throughout the book. Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? Boy, he's not very uh, uh, politically correct in his terminology. Man a maggot, man a worm. 
What is that old hymn that we sing for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross. Man's got a profane reputation. Turn over to Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes. So jump past Psalms, jump past Proverbs, and go right to Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, verse 20. Ecclesiastes 7.20. This is the guy who God says, you, you ask of me anything, I'll give it to you. He didn't ask for prestige. He didn't ask for power. He asked for chokmah, wisdom. Give me wisdom, God. God gave him wisdom that surpassed the people. And so, so he pens Ecclesiastes. Man tries life this way, life under the sun, it's vanity, it's emptiness, doesn't make sense, it's horrible, it's wickedness, it's full of nothing. But when you fear God, God-fearers who have a proper perspective on life, so he pens Scripture on uh, some of this profane reputation. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Notice the way he constructed that sentence so that there, there could be no excuse. He, he says, he, he affirms by way of negatives what, uh, that, that there is not a righteous man who does good continually and never sins. Look at... Uh, Verse 29, behold, I have found only this, that God made man upright. What was the condition before Genesis 3? In Genesis 1 and 2, it's good. It's very good. God made man upright in a condition of untested holiness. But they sinned. God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices you know, as, as the psalmist had said, scheming on their beds, how can I sin? How can I sin? Over in uh, the ninth chapter, Ecclesiastes 9.3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And again, Ecclesiastes is a book that, that, uh, that Solomon wrote to expose worldwide wisdom. Here is a basic axiom of life, a general principle. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that there is one fate for all man. And what is that, says the writer of Hebrews? It's appointed unto man, wants to die, and after that comes judgment. Furthermore, second half of verse 3, furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Think about that one word he uses, insanity. The rest of Scripture actually points out, especially here in this book, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the unsaved man 
It's a, it's a life of nonsense. Our, we have twisted reasoning. We cannot think straight unless we think through a biblical lens. What does the unbeliever think about divine truth? The natural man doesn't receive it. It's, to him, foolishness. A crucified Messiah? A cross? That doesn't lead to happiness, says unsaved man. It's only through the cross comes glorification, says Scripture. Profane reputation. Jeremiah the prophet attests to these same truths. Jeremiah 17, a, uh, a well-known verse of Scripture. Jeremiah 17, verse number 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Look at verse 7. In contrast to that, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. Skip down to verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Lest you think that it's only the Old Testament prophets that uh, subscribe to this, turn over to Matthew. The first gospel account in the New Testament. And as Jesus is teaching about the righteous and the unrighteous, as He talks about The false teachers of the day. He says, you want to know? You want to know the real deal? He speaks about how that uh, the heart becomes visible. The unseen heart that you cannot observe, you can observe through the actions that come from it. In Matthew 12, verse 34... In, in regards to the Pharisees, the self-righteous ones, the one with warped, twisted reasoning, saying, you do what you do through the power of Beelzebul. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, being evil, the condition of their heart, their nature, how can you, being evil, speak what's good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what's good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. You know somebody's theology just by what they say. You know somebody's theology just by what they dwell on, what the affections of their heart are. How about, uh, you know, that, that's in regards to the Pharisees. What about in regards to the uh, disciples? Luke, Luke eleven thirteen. 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke. 
Luke eleven thirteen says it a little differently than the verses we were just looking at. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The unseen heart becomes observable by our actions, our speech. You talk with people who, claim, who, who say, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, is it validated by, by a, a life of righteousness or, or is it negated by those who practice lawlessness that Jesus says, depart from me? I, I never knew you. Let's go to the next slide. So, we've got polluted roots. We've got a profane reputation. And since we were just talking about our actions, in, in those actions, we are totally unable to do good. What does Jeremiah 13, 23 say? Somebody want to read that for us? Jeremiah 13, 23. What a great picture that is very clear and understandable. I'm a white man, white Caucasian. I have to check that off in the medical charts when, they, when they, you fill out your paperwork, you go to the doctor and whatnot. I'm a white man. I can't become a black man. Jeremiah says, black man can't become a white man. An Ethiopian can't change his skin. And if you can't change your skin, you also cannot change your condition, your nature. That's the connection, the spiritual reality, the condition that he relates to us. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2.14, I'd already referred to it this morning, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's why I'd said last week, you, are, are we supposed to develop good reasoned arguments for the credibility of the Christian faith? Absolutely. Talk with them about biblical creationism, the one who was there, the Creator God, who tells us how He brought everything into existence. To teach that to the evolutionists. Give a well-reasoned argument but at the end of the day, you can't reason an unbeliever out of a paper bag. You cannot reason them into the faith. It takes a work of the Spirit of God. It takes a miracle to take a heart of a rebel and turn them into a heart of a slave of Jesus Christ who is devoted to loving and honoring and obeying Him. The natural man does not accept them. We still, as Peter says, are to give a reason for the hope that lies within. Give a reason. But they don't accept it. Move on to the next gospel opportunity. Don't just keep spinning your tires. 
won't accept it. You pray for God to enlighten them. You pray for God to work in their hearts. To them, it's foolishness. Not only do they not receive the truth, they don't accept it, but they can't. Can't understand it. Can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They do not have the illuminating ministry of the Spirit of God that helps them understand divine truth and obey divine truth. That compulsion. So as we search the Scriptures with this connection of the fall of man into sin from the garden, hence then, to studying this doctrine of the depraved nature that has been credited or imputed to us through Adam. We've got polluted roots. We've got a profane reputation. You know, if you were to think further on the, on the issue, from polluted roots to profane reputation, you had a third one in there that, that I just mentioned from, uh, from 1 Corinthians. Perverted reasoning. Perverted reasoning. Can I remind you of Genesis 6-5, where Moses, by divine inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that the condition right before the flood, after the fall, but before the flood, God was sorry that He'd made man because the thoughts and intentions of His heart were only evil continually. Only evil continually. And alongside what Moses records for us in Genesis 6-5, we would insert Paul's instruction to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 4... Verses 17 through 19, this fleshes out a little further man's perverted reasoning. As he talks about putting on the new man, the believers, those that have been enlightened by the gospel. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. As he unfolds for Christians what it means to look, act, be a devoted follower of Jesus, he says your thought process changes. You don't dwell on sin in the night watches on the bed like David told us about earlier in our lesson. Your thought life changes. Don't walk as the Gentiles, those that do not know God, in the futility of their mind. Verse 18 of Ephesians 4, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. See, it's a heart issue. It's not an intellectual issue. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of of every kind of impurity with greediness. I would commend these verses of Scripture for your study this week or in the, in the days to come to unpack the reality of man's perverted reasoning. 
Because it's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. And you could insert into this thinking Isaiah the prophet, who, uh, who Jesus uh, refers to in, uh, uh, in, in Matthew 13. Jesus' disciples asked him a question. From the point of the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit onward, from that point on in, in Matthew 13, Jesus only would teach in parables. And so his disciples asked why. And so he diagnoses the heart condition that they're heart of heart. It's a hardness of heart issue. It's a refusal to believe the gospel. And that's what uh, Paul unpacks here in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So, in our nature, lacking spiritual good, we've got polluted roots, we've got a profane reputation, we've got perverted reasoning. We've got, fourthly, perpetual resistance. Perpetual resistance. Though we won't go there due to, due to time's sake, Romans 1. Unbeliever suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. They suppress, push it down, excuse it, turn their back on it, ignore it, refuse it, resist it. That's Romans 1. other things that we could say, but let's, let's end where we began. And instead of Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Would you take your Bibles and turn there? As in Adam, all man does what? Died. Man died through Adam. The second Adam came, the Lord Jesus. First Adam being a type, being a picture of what was looked forward to. And in the second Adam, we've got life. Life through His name. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. Notice this glorious reality. Darkness, bleakness, hopelessness in total depravity. But through Christ comes this glimmer, this ray of hope. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. The one who defeated death, hell, and the grave, who defeated us, who defeated Satan, who defeated sin. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is the glorious truth of the gospel in spite of original sin. Let original sin make us walk with continual jealousy and watchfulness over our hearts. Some have likened the, uh, the, the sin of our nature like uh, being a sleeping lion the least thing that awakens it makes it rage. The sin of our nature, though it seems quiet, I've come to Christ, seems quiet, it lies as fire hid under the embers. And if it be a little stirred, like in my wood stove, I go down and I stoke the fire in the morning. And I pull those ashes, those, those gray and white ashes, 
and all of a sudden, the embers underneath are exposed to oxygen and air, and they start to glimmer and breathe. So it's in nature. A little stirred and blown upon by a temptation, and how quickly it flames forth into scandalous evils. So the doctrine of total depravity is not just for the unbeliever, beloved, brother and sister in Christ. We ought to watch, walk watchfully because a wandering heart, as Thomas Watson says, needs a watchful eye. Might we learn from that our condition before Christ and even that which we daily live of the gospel grace for. Father, give us understanding into your word. Give us obedience under your word. And as, we continue, as we've studied more on our hopeless cause without Christ, we see also the only hope, Christ and Christ alone. We give you glory and praise and adoration and worship and service for what Christ accomplished for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Thank you for taking out that stony heart, replacing it with a heart of flesh, one that as a slave of the Lord Jesus is inclined and desirous of obeying and glorifying you. We thank you for this new aim in life, the aim to please the one who died for us that we might live through him. In Christ's name we praise you. Amen.